Hello and welcome to PsychOG. This is a psychology podcast here to coach you through all of your Cambridge International Psychology 9990 AS exams. We're here to bring you all that you need to know for the 12 key studies. I'm Jo and I'm talking to you from here in New Zealand and we also have Jamie from Spain and Leanne from China. Welcome to the episode today. Today we're going to have a look at Baron Cohen et al's study, which is nicknamed the eyes test in the Cambridge syllabus. And this looks at the way that we test the ability of individuals in terms of theory of mind or T-O-M. And this is a little bit about like reading people's emotions only by looking at their eyes. A bit of a general overview of what's going on here. They had done, so Baron Cohen and his colleagues had done a first version of this test before and they'd studied it and they'd released papers about that. But in the current one, they modify it, improve it and further test it to see if we can tell the difference between those who have high functioning autism or Asperger's syndrome and those who are considered to be quote unquote normal controls. So that is our general overview, and I'll pass it over to Leanne. Tell us a bit more about the psychology being investigated here. Hello, everyone. So, yeah, so we've got a couple of key concepts to cover so we can really understand what's going on in this study. So if we take each of them in turn, let's start with theory of mind, quite often abbreviated to TOM in a lot of the books. Now, theory of mind, if we have a clear definition here, is the ability to attribute mental states like beliefs, intents, desires, emotions and knowledge to both ourselves and others. Okay, so what does that actually mean? That means we can understand what we're thinking or feeling in ourselves, but also that we can recognize it in others. And quite often that's used to recognize things that maybe are less obvious. So a common example you see in the textbooks is there is a plate with some nice crunchy green broccoli and a plate with a lovely cake sitting on it. And your friend is staring at the cake. Now, if you have a strong theory of mind, you can look at your friend and think, ah, they want the cake because we can infer from the fact they're staring at it that they want the cake without them needing to say, I want cake. If you don't have a strong theory of mind, you won't really understand which they want or why. Now, obviously, having theory of mind, having the ability to understand what people might be thinking or feeling is pretty crucial for social interaction. You know, we need to be able to tell when people are maybe getting annoyed or when people are upset or when people are happy so that we can interact with them in an appropriate way. And this is not something we're born with. It's something that develops over time. So generally, children under the age of four really don't have a good theory of mind at all. And children after the age of four, if they are, in inverted commas, normal or neurotypical, I think is the phrase used today, they will. And a very popular test used for young children is something called the Sally Ann test. So you have an imaginary scenario. You have two dolls, one called Sally, one called Anne. And Sally has a box and Anne has a basket. And Sally has a marble. And she puts that marble in her basket and then Sally leaves. While Sally's out the room, naughty Anne takes the marble from the basket and puts it in her box. Sally then returns to the room And the question the researcher would ask at this point to the child is, where will Sally look for her marble? Now, we, because we've observed it, know where the marble is, but Sally doesn't. Sally left the room. Generally, children under the age of four will say, oh, she'll look in the box because that's where the marble is. Children over the age of four will be able to infer that Sally didn't see the marble being moved. So therefore, Sally will say, 
the marble is in her basket. And that is essentially a very simple overview of theory of mind. There's a lot more complexity to it than that. But what's critical for this study is that children or adults with autism seem to lack a theory of mind. In other words, just the same as the children under a certain age, they would struggle to attribute that knowledge to another person. Moving on to autism slash Asperger's. I think this is one of these developmental disorders that everybody has heard of. There's lots of different views on it, lots of different research, and it's changed quite rapidly in recent years. But essentially, it is a developmental disability that can be seen in perhaps three key areas of impairment. The first of those is social interaction. People struggle to relate with, have conversations with other people. Second is delays or difficulties with verbal and nonverbal communication. And thirdly, a lack of imagination. So in a child, you might see a lack of pretend play. Everything is very logical, very factual. And this disorder affects approximately 1% of the population, so something like one in 100 people. And I think a key feature of this is that difficulty communicating and interacting with others. And that's the particular focus here. Now we've got, if you like, a spectrum of autistic disorders. And the two we're looking at here are, if you like, the higher functioning end. So we have Asperger's and high functioning autism. Now, this is where it gets a little bit confusing because today, or as of 2014, Asperger's and high functioning autism are now classified under an autistic spectrum disorder or ASD. They're not diagnosed independently. But at the time this study was carried out, they were seen as two distinct disorders. Both of them contain people who are higher functioning than perhaps other types of autistic. So they can speak, communicate, they still have some deficiencies, but generally their IQ is at a higher range. Okay, and the key difference here really between Asperger's and high functioning autism or HFA is that in Asperger's, there's no significant impairments in language, whereas higher functioning autism, we might see delayed language abilities, particularly early in development. That kind of covers the key points that we need to know for this study. Which means it's my turn. Um, I wanted to talk about this neurotypical normal thing. I have such a hard time saying normal. In the study, they talk about normal adults. And uh, so I didn't know that this neurotypical thing is a term. So I'm going to go with that. And I think that we should continue with that in the study as we talk about it. So thank you for that, Leanne. I really do appreciate that. With the eyes test. So we must remember that this study is a revised test. So we're studying the second version, the sequel to the eyes test. The first version, if you think about it, was actually not very good anyway. So we're going to talk about that. In the first version, the researchers were trying to create this measure where they could determine whether people have a developed theory of mind or not in certain people. The test that they created was reading the mind in the eyes, you know, like this one, except for this one is called the revised version. The idea was to be able to determine what a person was feeling solely based on their eyes in a static picture. So all you can see is a picture of the person's eyes and then they were given, oh, and then if they were able to determine what the person was feeling just by looking at their eyes, then they had like a well-developed theory of mind, cognitive function. That's the reason why it's in the cognitive approach. 
This next thing that we're talking about is important to know for later. Okay. So the participants included a group of neurotypical adults. They say in the study, normal. I always put it in quotations because who's really normal? I mean, come on. Including parents of children with AS and HFA. Then there were adults who had AS or HFA, and there were adults with Tourette syndrome. And in the study, they're referred to as adults with TS. In the test, the participants were shown 25 pictures of a mixture of male and female eyes, but there were mostly female eyes. So you can tell that that's already going to be an issue for the revised test for them to fix. Then they were expected to choose between two options of words that described the person's eyes in the picture. The words were semantic opposites. So if they had, you know, they had the eyes and then the two words were either sympathetic or unsympathetic. So the words were semantic opposites. They meant the exact opposite from each other. This test only shows whether a person can determine or decipher a person's emotions and not whether they can infer certain content relating to that mental state. So it really only measures half of the aspects that are involved with a well-developed theory of mind. We're going to look at the main problems now. So the first problem was that they were given a choice between two words. It was a forced choice between two words. So the problem with the first test was that it was too easy. You could use your powers of deduction, deduction, Sherlock, to figure out if you knew that the person's eyes did not look sympathetic, then you only had one other choice to choose from. So this forced choice made the scores such that there wasn't a very wide range of scores. So you couldn't allow for any kind of individual differences. And even the people who were high functioning autistics or um, with Asperger's, they were also scoring quite highly. So the test needed tweaking, we could say. We had this interesting point about the choice and about the original test. We also had that parents of children with AS scored below the general population, but they scored at a similar level to the adults with AS and HFA, even though they didn't have AS and HFA. So in the study, they talk about how there might be this broader phenotype. So this biological aspect that a, a gene that is causing them to not have a well-developed theory of mind. So it's an interesting point, that whole little section, I think they only talk about it for a sentence in the study. It brings up a little bit of a debate. So we'll get to debating later. The new design element about choice is the forced choice between four response options. They raised the number of eyes, pictures of eyes to 36. So originally it was 25, they raised it to 36. So by increasing the options from two to four, they made it so there would be a range of 13 to 36 responses. So this is going to allow for more individual differences. Next, the mental state. So there were both basic and complex states as the forced options in the original study. So that means sad or happy, or as I mentioned, sympathetic or unsympathetic. So it may be easy to determine in some of them, like very, very easy, or it may be quite complicated, but also you only have those two choices. 
So if you know that it isn't one, you, you would be forced just to choose the other. So they were producing ceiling effects. So remember that from research methods. By having that forced option of two, ceiling effects were produced and it made the test too easy, we could say. So only complex mental states were used to make the task more challenging and this way increased the likelihood of obtaining a greater range of performance in a random sample of adults. There were some pairs of eyes which could be solved easily by looking at the gaze direction of the face. So you could tell in the picture of the eyes whether the face was turned or whether they were looking in a different direction. And so if the options were distracted or not distracted, I don't know what the opposite of distracted would be, then they would choose distracted because their gaze direction shows that they're not looking at the camera, they're not looking directly. These particular in the new revised test, these were excluded from the second version. So they didn't have those that were so easily distinguishable because of the gaze direction. They were just completely eliminated. Now, gender. So in the first test, there were more females than males. And in the new version, they used half and half. So there was an equal number of males and an equal number of female eyes. And they also added a new control. They added trying to determine whether they could tell that the person was a male or female just by looking at their eyes. And in the pilot, they figured out that the neurotypical normal adults, it was very, very easy. Everyone got the answer correct on the gender question, whether it was a male or female. They figured out that that would be too easy for them. So they left that only in the study, the revised version, they left it only for people who had high-functioning autism or Asperger's, so the ASHFA group. That is an important new aspect to the test. They added determining gender as a control. In the original test, the target word and FOIL were always semantic opposites. So I've already discussed this a little bit, making it too easy to guess or even just to deduct which one it might be. Also, if you have a 50-50 choice, you're either going to get it right or wrong. It's almost as if you don't have to think about it. You could just click through. If you actually want to do an eyes test, you can Google it and you can find one that takes about 10 minutes to do. Now, it is voluntary. You do have to give your informed consent. You do have to understand that you know, this is not meant to harm you. All of the ethical issues are covered. I do recommend taking that test and the autism quotient test because it's just kind of fun to see. But as I always tell my students, don't try diagnosing yourself with every disorder that we talk about because everybody does it and you probably don't have an extreme form of a disorder. But if you do, please talk to your psychiatrist health professional. So with the ease of guessing, so they were always semantic opposites. They increased the level of difficulty by ensuring that the foils, so the incorrect responses, had the same emotional valence as the target word, which was the correct response. So when we talk in the study about the target word, we're talking about the correct response. When we talk about the foils, we're talking about the incorrect responses provided. So this is an important change, that they had the same emotional valence. If you have the study in front of you, there is an example of a man's eyes. So the, in the original version it was either serious or playful. And the man's eyes are serious. I don't wanna say quite obviously, because if you don't have a well-developed theory of mind, it may not be that obvious to you. 
And in the revised version, the word choices were serious, ashamed, alarmed, and bewildered. And if you happen to be looking at the man's eyes in this picture, you could see that those may be a little bit more difficult to choose from. Some of the eyes in the test are difficult to determine. You may find yourself between two options that are very strongly contending for a correct answer. And we'll talk a little bit about that in the results as well. But they had the same emotional valence in the original test. There may have been comprehension problems that could have contributed to an individual score. So if you had serious and playful, if you had those two, then it would be easy for you to figure out, okay, I know what playful is. So if I can tell that these eyes are not playful, then I can just choose the other one, even if you don't understand what the word means. In the revised test, they have provided a glossary, which has all of the terms that are included in the test as all of the options. And the participants were allowed to use that list, this glossary, at any time during the test. If they needed to refer back, they were given enough time to be able to go back and forth between the glossary and looking at the picture to determine if they understood what the word meant or not. Okay, so you just had a really good overview of the original eyes test and the changes they needed to make. So just to summarise what's quite a complex procedure, the revised eyes test used 36 pairs of eyes, an equal number of male and female pairs. There were four response options each time. No semantic opposites. These were removed. The foil choices, so the wrong answers, were therefore much more similar to the correct answer to make it more complex. And there was a glossary available to read at both at the beginning and available at all times during the experiment to avoid any issues with comprehension of the vocabulary rather than identification of the emotional state. So this study is a little bit different compared to some of the other ones that we look at as a part of the AES curriculum. And that when we think about the study type, we immediately go experiment. But there is a slight difference here in that In a regular experiment, we need to have the ability to randomize our participants into the different levels of the independent variable. But in this case, and Jamie will tell us in a moment what our IVs and DVs are, but in this case in particular, across our IVs, we can't actually determine who has Asperger's syndrome or high-functioning autism and who is neurotypical or quote-unquote normal. So therefore, this experiment is actually a quasi-experiment. We can't be 100% sure that what we're seeing with our dependent variables, we can't be 100% sure that that is as a result of the people's neurodivergence, their Asperger's, their high-functioning autism. We can't be sure that it's as a result of that as opposed to some other participant variables that these individuals have. It could well be something else. So that's why it's a quasi-experiment. Yes, it is using experimental methods. However, because we can't randomize who has Asperger's and who doesn't, then we can't be 100% certain about that. So that is our study type. Our aim is to test whether a group of adults with Asperger's syndrome or high-functioning autism would be impaired on the revised version of the reading the mind in the eyes task, similarly to the first version of the test. Also, to test in a sample of normal adults, an inverse or negative correlation would be seen between the eyes test and the autism quotient, which is another standardized test that we'll discuss a little bit later. 
And finally, also to test if the sex difference found that there was a female superiority on the first version of the test would also be replicated. Apparently, us ladies are just a little bit better at this eyes test thing and therefore hold a slightly better theory of mind. So leading on from our aims, we have five hypotheses which are named and numbered in the original article, and I will read these for you right now. So firstly, that the ASHFA group would score significantly lower on the eyes test, but would be unimpaired on the gender control judgments, so that they would be able to tell when the eye is male or female. However, they would not necessarily be able to choose the correct word to link to their eyes. Number two, that the ASHFA group would score significantly higher on the autism quotient, the AQ. Makes sense. Three, that females in the normal groups or the neurotypical groups, which are groups two and three, and we'll discuss more about the sample and those participants later, would score higher than the males on the eyes test. Number four, males in the normal group, group three, would score higher than females on the AQ. Lastly, number five, that scores on the AQ and the eyes test would be inversely correlated or negatively correlated. So have like a downward angle if we were to plot them onto a scatter graph. And that is our study type, our aim, our hypothesis. All right, let's talk about the independent variable. As there are four groups of participants, there are two levels of the IV. We're comparing people who are neurotypical compared to people who have AS and HFA. And this is a naturally occurring phenomenon. The dependent variable are the scores on the eye test and on the autism spectrum quotient. As you know, the dependent variable are what is being measured and the independent variable are the things that affect the things being measured. So in this case, the quote unquote normal adults are compared to the ASHFA participants on the scores of the eye test and the AQ. The sample, all right, we're moving along here. We have a sample overall, ASHFA participants were 15 in the revised test and the controls or the neurotypical adults were 239. So they divided them into four different groups looking at different things, but ultimately that independent variable is still just going to be the two levels, the quote unquote normal, compared to the ASHFA. So group one, we have, drum roll, come on down. We have 15 males with AS and HFA. They are coming from the same socioeconomic status and background, and they have the same educational level. Group two, here we go, 122 normal adults with a broad range of occupations and educational levels. We'll talk about where we got them from later. So I'm splitting them up. So we'll come back to where they came from later. Then group three, we have 103 quote unquote normal adult students, 53 male and 50 female undergraduates in Cambridge University. So by the way, 71 of those students were taking some sort of sciences degree path and 32 were in other subjects. And then group four, we have randomly selected 14 adults from the general population who were matched for their IQ with group one, which is the ASHFA group. Now you know who our volunteers are. That is a sample method. Also opportunity. Let's talk about where we got these participants from. The AS and HFA group were recruited via adverts in the UK National Autistic Society magazine, 
or equivalent support groups. So they got 15 participants with AS and HFA to come on down and participate in this study. The normal adults were taken from volunteers from the adult community and educational classes at Exeter or from the public library users at Cambridge. Then the third group were volunteers from the University of Cambridge. And we don't have a ton of information about this. It's not like they got extra credit points for classes they were taking, if they participated or anything like that. Um, we're not given great detail about how they were recruited, but we do have volunteers from University of Cambridge. And finally, group four were randomly selected from the general population. Again, we don't have a whole lot of information about how they were from the general population, but they were matched for IQ with the AS and HFA group. So we do need to recognize that group three is the university group. They are not representative of the general population as they can be considered to have a higher IQ as they do attend University of Cambridge. So we all know that you gotta be pretty smart to get into Cambridge. So they could definitely be considered to have maybe a higher socioeconomic status as well as a higher IQ. Okay, so let's move on and just refer back to this eyes test a minute, the revised eyes test. We talked a lot earlier about what it is and why we had this revision, but I want to talk a little bit more about how that test was created or put together. It's quite relevant to some of our evaluation points later on. So first of all, the target words and foils were actually created by the authors of the paper. So they put together their target words and their foils, and they then carried out pilot studies to test whether their new study was effective, I guess. So the pilot study was carried out with eight judges, four males and four females. And of these eight judges, at least five out of eight had to agree that the target word was the correct answer. Secondly, no more than two of the eight judges could pick the same foil as the correct answer. If that was the case, those groups of words were eliminated and the authors created new target words and new foils. And this pilot test was repeated until they were, all that criteria was met. So to repeat, five out of the eight judges had to agree on the target word and no more than two select the foil. That was kind of stage one of the development. Now next, what the right authors found when they looked at the results was groups two and three scored very similarly on this test. So they looked more closely at that data. And following the same procedure, they decided that to really ensure the effectiveness of this test, 50% or at least 50% of groups two and three had to agree on the answer. So they had to all agree with the same answer. And again, no more than 25% select any of the foils. Now, as a result of that, four items were actually dropped from the final analysis. So what was initially a 40 item test became a 36 item test. So quite a lot of work went into ensuring that this test really was measuring what they wanted it to measure. Yeah, it was all about bringing the consensus of that neurotypical adults all agreed on what was the correct target word as opposed to the foils. And so I like how when they were doing that, that it was at least five of the eight judges and then they were looking at more than 50%. So took in similar numbers there and no more than 25% or no more than two judges 
picking incorrect ones as well. So I like how those kind of things link together quite nicely. Okay, so that is how they developed the eyes test. Now, how did they actually do it with each of these groups of um, participants? So there is a slight difference of the procedure between the four groups. And I'll try to break it down. And I know for myself, I've created a beautiful visual flowchart, which of course you cannot see. So I'll try and talk you through it. What we do need to know is that all of the groups viewed the glossary and they did this first. So they read down the different individual words. And if they needed to, if they were unsure about any of those words, then they read the subsequent information, which will be told about very soon. And they were also told that they can refer to it during the test as needed. So they had it there in paper copy to have a look at. Secondly, all of the groups take the eyes test. Everybody does that. This is where group two finishes. That's all they've done. Glossary, eyes test. Group one, additionally, presumably as they're doing the eyes test, is that they also take on a gender recognition task on the sets of eyes. The other groups did not do this as they had seen when they were piloting this study and this test that they were to be seen at the ceiling for this task. And so this is a good time to talk about the ceiling effect. This is an effect that you will see in tests like this. The ceiling effect is more or less that everybody or a majority of the group are getting the top scores or a very close range to the absolute top score. And this was one of the problems of the original eyes test and having only two options in 25 sets of eyes, neurotypical adults were generally getting 22, 23, 24, 25 out of 25. And so there was a ceiling effect. We couldn't quite see the full range that was available. And so that was a problem here. But since neurotypical adults were generally at the ceiling of a gender recognition task, they went, you know what? We don't need to give it to any other neurotypical adults. We're just going to assume that they know that this set of eyes is a female and this set of eyes is a male, and that's okay. To review, all groups take glossary, all groups take the eyes test. Group one then also does a gender recognition task. Then groups one, three, and four also take the AQ, the autism spectrum quotient, to measure their value on that. So that's group one in, in the ASHFA group, group three, the students, and group four, the IQ match controls. And therefore, they don't really say it. 100% explicitly, but group one and four must well have also completed the IQ. So I just take that on at the end as well. So group three, glossary, eyes test, and the AQ. Group one, glossary, eyes test, gender recognition, AQ and IQ. Group four, glossary, eyes test, AQ and IQ. And if I said that too quickly, press pause, go back, listen to it again. So we need to remember that we're trying to see if there's a correlation. So the idea would be that the higher the AQ score, the lower the theory of mind score would be. So we're gonna talk about this more in results, but this is sort of the idea that if you are higher on the autism spectrum, as we call it now, then you should have a lower theory of mind. So as the autism quotient goes up, your theory of mind should go down. Conversely, the lower the AQ score, the higher the theory of mind score will be. So we will get into that a little bit later. However, it is important to mention that they're looking for that relationship and how it interacts. We're going to talk about the glossary. It's very straightforward, which is good because the participants were supposed to be using this and seeing it for the first time and know very clearly how to refer to it and how to understand it. So it's very simple, this glossary. 
It's in Appendix B of the study. So if you happen to have that in front of you, you can just flip to that. It is fairly long list because as you know, they have a lot of different foils to add into there as well. It is in alphabetical order as it should be so that people can find it quite easily. Everybody knows the alphabet and it provides a synonym. It's not even quite a definition. It's more of a synonym or two synonyms for that word to help the person understand what that word means. So the idea is that if they don't understand one of the synonyms, they might understand the other synonym, unless the one synonym provided is fairly clear and very understandable. Next, an example sentence is provided where the glossary word that is being looked up is italicized in that example sentence. For example, if we look up indifferent, disinterested, unresponsive, don't care. Terry was completely indifferent as to whether they went to the cinema or the pub. So that is what we are looking at with the glossary. The AQ is a measure of the degree to which a person, an individual of normal IQ possesses traits related to the autistic spectrum. And the AQ is a self-report questionnaire and scores range from zero to 50. So this is not a pass-fail exam. This is a spectrum exam. So the higher the score that you have, sort of the more autism you would have. Most people probably are not even a zero. I don't know if somebody could actually get a zero on this, but the higher the score, the more autistic traits a person would possess. So that is the AQ. And I would encourage you guys, there is a test if you want to try and see what your score is. Again, these things are sort of fun to take, or maybe I'm just a weirdo, but it's really interesting to see sort of how far on the spectrum you are and to see whether you can identify whether you can read the mind and the eyes. I always like to give both the AQ and the eyes test to my students. And then I um, get their scores anonymously and I average them and things. But then the individuals also know what their eyes test score is and they know what their AQ score is. And I tell them, hey, if you're concerned, go have a chat with your parents, maybe think about going and getting some testing done. But you're probably fine. So don't worry about it too much. But you know, just for interest sake and to have a better idea of what the test looks like and what the AQ is all about. I do the same, Joe. I do give the eyes test and the AQ, but I don't give the full AQ. And then I talk about why haven't I given the full test with the idea that it encourages them to think about the ethics of me as a non-expert administering a test that could, although it's not classed as diagnostic test, could actually cause distress to someone who scored very highly so I rather than giving them the whole test I give them enough to give them a feel for what the test is but not so much that they could be psychologically harmed by finding out that maybe they're on the autism spectrum yeah we don't want to give our students complexes the other test that we mentioned before a couple of times was the gender recognition task so as I mentioned before that was given to Because in the pilot study, they tested the quote-unquote normal adults to see if they would be able to determine gender in the eyes, and everybody was able to. There was no problem for the normal adults, but they wanted to add it to the ASHFA group. So as Joe mentioned, that was one of the tests that they used uh, with the ASHFA group to determine if they could tell gender in the eyes. And so... That's why it was only given to them because the pilot study, it just 
it was too easy. And so to make it a little bit shorter and not as labor intensive for all of the participants, they nixed that from the uh, normal adult groups. As the study says specifically, the normal adults were found to be at ceiling on the gender recognition task during piloting. So to save time, we're not required to do this task. So they added it to the ASHFA group. Results. They talk about a couple of things in the results that I think are always really good to revise. We're going to be looking at standard deviation, dun, 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 and ANOVA. So before we get into start talking about standard deviation and the ANOVA and what that is, I just wanted to mention that's one of the biggest things that we're going to look at as far as the results that have to do with the glossary words, okay? Because that doesn't have anything to do with the standard deviation or the ANOVA. So between the four groups, the number of words looked up did not differ between any of the groups. So the ASHFA group looked up the same amount of words as the Cambridge University students. And nobody ever looked up more than two words, which I would be looking up words the whole time. So I'm a little bit surprised by that, to be honest, just because I would want to be sure. So maybe we don't know all the circumstances. So, yeah. That might be because of a social desirability bias. People don't want to be thought as thick and therefore looking up the words, but Maybe in different circumstances, they might want to look up more of the words, but in this case, max two. Absolutely. So when we're talking about these results, we're going to be looking at table three. So if you do have your study in front of you, go ahead and open up to table three and let's get into it. Standard deviation. Okay. We're going back to research methods. When we say the standard deviation, we're talking about what usually looks like a bell curve. So you guys know what a bell looks like. I mean, for those of you who are in a country where we celebrate Christmas, it mostly looks like a bell like that low on the ends and high in the middle curve. That's a normal bell curve. So what the standard deviation is, is they take the mean score and they stick it smack dab in the middle. Remember that deviation is anything that veers off from the mean, from the norm. So whether you have a deviant in society, they're veering off from the norms of the society or with standard deviation, you're talking about whatever score is veered off from the mean. It sets the mean in the center of the graph and then the points are plotted on the chart based on how far the scores lie from the mean above and below. That's why it looks like a bell because it's gonna be in the middle going off the sides, going down gradually. It is a measure of spread because it measures the distance from the mean. So on a normal bell curve, you're going to have the majority of the scores are going to lie one standard deviation from the mean, okay? 34% above the mean and 34% below the mean. So about 68% of the scores are going to lie one standard deviation from the mean. And then two standard deviations, 13.6% above or 13.6% below one standard deviation, even further outside of the mean. And then there are two other standard deviations. So three standard deviations from the mean would mean that only about 2% typically, if it's a normal bell curve, will lie three standard deviations from the mean. And then four standard deviations from the mean will be 0.15%. Perhaps it's complicated. If you look up normal bell curve on Google, you'll see what I'm talking about. So Google just the image, because you don't want to get too complicated. You don't need to know how to calculate it, but you do need to understand that these scores are how far they are from the mean. With that said, let's move on to ANOVA. So ANOVA is the analysis of variance. An 
analysis O of variance VA. That's what it stands for. When a researcher wants to compare the scores of multiple groups and the differences, the variances between them, they will use an ANOVA analysis. They want to see if there are statistically significant differences between the groups, find out if there are any similarities, examine those differences, and it can also help researchers figure out how well the model, whatever the test is, fits the data. So that is standard deviation and ANOVA. Now, let's look at the data. When we look at table three of the study, we can see that the ASHFA participants performed significantly worse than any other groups on the revised eyes test. The ASHFA group scored higher on the AQ test than any other groups. The distribution of scores for the revised eyes test forms a normal bell curve. You can see that in the picture under table three, which is figure three, and it looks like a fairly normal bell curve. You can see that it almost forms this bell picture. We do have a problem with some of the AQs. Some of the results had to be sacked because some people did not return the AQs for whatever reason. So we have only 14 in the AS and HFA group because one did not return the AQ. In group three, we have 18 of the females that did not return their AQ and six of the males that did not return the AQ. And so we have 24 participants that did not return the AQ. So they had to toss some of that data. The ASHFA groups on the eyes test got a 21.9 and had a 6.6 .6 standard deviation. In group two, we have 122 participants and the mean eyes test scores were 26.2 and the males scored at 26 and the females scored at 26.4. Then in group three, remember these are the university students, we had 103 participants, 53 male and 50 female, and their mean score overall was 28. So the males got a little bit lower at 27.3 and the females got 28.6. Um, which was one of the hypotheses, if you remember from what Joe mentioned before. Then in group four, there were 14 participants with a uh, mean ICE test score of 30.9, and they scored at 18.9 on the AQ. And the university students scored at a 18.3 on the AQ. The male scored a little bit higher, as was also part of the hypotheses at 19.5, and the female scored lower at 16.6. Okay, so another little bit of results we need to look at is if we remember that group one, our Asperger's high functioning autism group, also completed the gender recognition test. So looking at whether each pair of eyes was male or female. And this was really, I guess, done as a type of control, because we're expecting this group to have some, if you like, cognitive impairment through the nature of their disability. But what we really want to make sure is we're looking at the emotions. All of the 15 males in this group one scored 33 or above on the sex recognition task, which means we can infer that they're not impaired on gender recognition. But perhaps when we look at the results, which we've just heard about, they are more impaired on theory of mind tasks. Okay, so that's just worth bearing in mind that there don't seem to be significant difficulties recognising the gender. Now, obviously, two key groups to compare in terms of results are our group one, and our group four, the IQ match group. Okay, so we have our IQ matched in inverted commas, normal 
population versus those with our disability. Now, when we look at the mean eye test scores, and if you want to remember some data, you don't have to, but it's worth remembering a few small bits. The mean eye test scores for group one were 21.9, whereas for group four, 30.9. So that was a significant difference between the two groups. So our normal population scored significantly higher on the eye test than our autism Asperger's group. And we see the same in reverse with the AQ scores. Group four, our IQ match group, mean score is 18.9, whereas group one, 34.4. So again, a very significant difference in scores between the two groups. A couple more sets of results to go through and to link back to the hypotheses. So the first is a male and versus female comparison. And this was specifically looking at groups two and three, our neurotypical or normal control groups for both the eyes test and the AQ. So for the eyes test, they saw a sex difference between the um, two genders and it approached significance. It wasn't a significant difference, though it definitely showed that females were scoring higher than males, but we don't know, we can't see the difference statistically, though it was getting close to that. On the AQ, however, males did score significantly higher than females as predicted, which is what they also saw when they did their original study looking at the original eyes test as well. In terms of the correlation between the AQ and the revised ICS, they predicted and hypothesized an inverse correlation or a negative correlation. And that was true for all three groups where both measures were used. So group one, uh, Asperger's high-functioning autism group, and groups three and four. So they did see that negative correlation. Now, a tricky question that they do bring up in some of the exams in the past has been a result that supports theory of mind. And as we've talked a little bit about before with theory of mind, we're talking about attributing um, relevant mental states to yourself and also to other people. And so this is testing that, but it's also testing only part of theory of mind because it's not just attribution of the relevant mental state, but the second part is also why that mental state is being held. So for example, one person might be crying and you might think and attribute quite accurately that the person is sad. Of course, you can have tears of joy, but say in this case, the person is sad. The thing is, is that we then need to also like part B of this theory of mind would be going a little bit further to determine why is that person feeling so sad. So that could be as a result of that their grandmother has died and you know that, or it could be just that they put their toast down and it came up a lot more brown or closer to burn than they wanted. And it was just like the last straw. And here they are crying and very, very sad about their piece of toast. And so that is part of this whole idea of theory of mind. This test only tests the first part, which is the attribution of the correct mental state. We can't go much further than that because we're only looking at static images of eyes. Anyway, a result that supports this. So because group one or the ASHFA group were significantly worse than the um, quote unquote normal controls at choosing the correct mental state for each pair of eyes, it shows that they are impaired in this first stage of theory of mind. And really, if you are impaired with the first stage of theory of mind, you can't really progress to the second stage of theory of mind of going, well, why are they feeling that way? Because if we don't know what they're feeling, we can't explain why they're feeling it. So it does support the fact that some people are good at theory of mind, generally neurotypical individuals, and some people have an impaired ability. And in this case, particularly focusing in on those who have Asperger's high functioning autism.
To conclude the study before we then um, link into our debates and our assumptions and our evaluation of this, we do need to think about some conclusions. Just a reminder with our conclusions, you should be writing in your answers in the present tense. Results are past tense, conclusions are present and future tense, so looking towards the future. How can we relate these things? Firstly, is that participants who have Asperger's syndrome or high-functioning autism have a deficit in their cognitive processes that allow them to identify emotions in other individuals. So they are impaired in the cognitive processes of theory of mind. The second conclusion we can make from this is that the revised ISS, if we're just thinking about the test itself, it is a more sensitive measure of adult social intelligence than the original eyes test that was used in previous studies. So we can conclude that this test, the revised eyes test, is better than the first version. Let's debate. It is time for issues and debates. So I'm going to welcome my colleagues to come in and join me in this debate. So nature versus nurture. So people with ASHFA, I'm on nature, people with ASHFA, supposedly have biological differences. This study makes reference to a broader phenotype that allows for, we could talk like a genetic predisposition perhaps to ASHFA. So if the parents are carrying this broader phenotype, they did more poorly on the, on the eyes test, the original eyes test. They have determined, Bailey et al. 1995, have determined that an autism phenotype exists the previous research showed that, that the parents scored lower. So if they're carrying this gene or this genetic predisposition and the children end up with autism or getting diagnosed on the spectrum because of this, then there is sort of a nature aspect to it. So that's there. I'm just going to leave it there. But nurture, it could be argued that theory of mind is learned through childhood interactions with other people. So especially if you're dealing with other children, whether you're at school, daycare, siblings, or whatever, it's a part of learning how to get along with other people and things like that. But as Leanne mentioned before, we don't really have that developed. And we could say that the mean age is four, but some people don't develop it until they're you know six. But some people will develop it a little bit earlier and some people will develop it a little bit later. And we haven't actually said the words female superiority yet. And I'm really sorry, Carl is not here. Talking about female superiority, one of my favorite parts of Baron Cohen, females are typically more able. So maybe that's a part of the nature argument too. It's interesting you mentioned female superiority then. I was just thinking of the point that traditionally more males and females are actually diagnosed with autism, but actually what's become increasingly common, and I know this through friends and family, it's actually girls are underdiagnosed because they present very differently. And some of that could be connected to our nurturing that girls are socialized differently to boys. So there's kind of an emerging argument there as actually autism is not a male disease. It just is seen differently. And therefore, maybe we overdiagnose or underdiagnose based on gender. I was thinking the same thing, Jamie, but like when you were talking about males versus females and female superiority in this I thought you're going to go the complete opposite direction you went well it must be a nature thing like we're just generally better and all I'm thinking is yeah but females are 
taught and expected to be better at this kind of stuff. And therefore I was thinking completely the opposite going, well, this is clearly an evidence that this is a nurture thing because women and people who present as females are expected to be better at this, to be able to look at somebody's face and clearly know that they are sad because their dog has just been sent to the vet and may not make it through the night. Like we're expected to know that kind of stuff. Whereas for a man, it's kind of like, even if we think about color recognition, man knows red, blue, green, orange, and women know violet and mauve and like all of these different shades. And it's kind of similar with the emotions, I guess, as well. Very interesting. We could even look at, and we could argue, because we're debating here, that there are cultural differences there. I don't know how autism in other cultures, we'll say like African cultures, for example, or Asian cultures, how often Asperger's or people on the autism spectrum are diagnosed. And to find out if there are cultural differences, is it Western society, how females are socialized? Is that how they, that makes them more attuned to how other people are feeling and reading the mind and eyes and things like that and inferring? I don't know. I did want to bring up the fact that another debatable issue here would be whether it is reductionist. We've talked about it a few times and you guys have brought up some really interesting and great things, but is it reductionist because it's not including that inferences aspect of measuring theory of mind. But I think it was Leanne who mentioned earlier, if we're not able to do that first aspect, then you definitely won't be able to do that second aspect of inferring why somebody is feeling that way. So I don't know what you guys think about that. I think that's true, but I wonder sometimes if that relationship can can go the other way, that you can learn factually, okay, if someone's dog has just died, they're going to be sad. So rather than thinking that person's sad, it must be because their dog has died. Perhaps you can learn that, okay, the typical emotional reaction when your dog has died is sadness. I know factually that person's dog has died. Therefore, whatever they're doing right now, that must mean they're sad. So there's sort of the nurture, but almost looking at it a different way around. Yeah, I like the thought of that and put the cart before the donkey, as it were, but you could still get both things to wherever it needs to go. And that kind of links in a little bit, and we'll talk about it later with the application, that people who have been diagnosed with Asperger's or high-functioning autism can actually be taught and get better at this whole theory of mind thing. And maybe it is because they're not necessarily because they're better at looking at people, but they're better at understanding circumstances that can then lead to improved theory of mind ability. So maybe it is a little bit of all those kinds of things wrapped in. Very interesting. It could go either way. Just as a question to finish up this debate, how many people here have been taught to offer a cuppa when someone is having a difficult time? Yes. <laughs> Standard response. If you don't do that, you're kind of kicked out of the country and lose your passport. It's all about the tea. I am a big fan of tea. And I'm also very much reminded of Big Bang Theory. Now, we've talked about this a little bit before on the podcast, if you've been listening to our episodes up till now. But we've talked about Sheldon Cooper on Big Bang Theory a few different times before. But he has definitely been taught that when somebody is sad, you offer a cup of tea. And I am with him on that. Bring on the cups of tea and buckets. All right. Now, listen, you brought he's a male. I was trying to make it so that females were the ones who offered the cup. <laughs> well, he's clearly learned it from his mother. There you go. Fair enough. I'd say, isn't that a clear example of nurture over nature there? That if, you know, he's, the genetics has led to his condition, but he can learn to be a more typical person and offer that cup of tea 
even if he doesn't fully understand why that is the appropriate response. One of the questions we often get in the exam are all about the assumptions of a particular approach. So here we're obviously looking at the cognitive approach. So as well as those questions of name two assumptions of the cognitive approach, you might get questions that ask you to give an example of how this study connects to the cognitive approach. So if we take it back a step, so the cognitive approach assumes that all our behaviour and our emotions are determined by some internal processing. So information goes in, we process it, and then the behaviour or the feelings are what come out the other end. Now, obviously, from this approach, we can't measure what's happening inside our brains. This is the cognitive approach, so we're thinking of our minds like a bit of a computer. But we can work out what's happening by observing external things and then making an inference. So in the case of here, we're assuming that our internal process is this, if you like, abstract concept theory of mind. We can't directly see theory of mind working, but we can measure it through things like the AQ and the eyes test. We can use these tests to look for a cognitive deficit. So in this case, the cognitive deficit would be how the information is processed and more specifically how we identify emotions or emotional reactions in others. We now have our wonderful evaluation points. We're going to use the GRAVE acronym to help us work through the five different things. Firstly, we do have G for generalizability. And so generalizability, thinking about how well we can relate what we learned from our particular samples to the population that those samples would have been taken from. So we're not talking about population in the geographical sense, we're talking about population in the psychological study sense. In this case, we've got a sample of male people with Asperger's and high-functioning autism. And so that particular sample there would be relevant to a population of all males who have been diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome and high-functioning autism. Though we've also in this study got the larger samples of our neurotypical or normal adults, both students and adults from a wide range of ages as well. So in this case, the generalizability is a little bit here and there. In terms of our neurotypical people, we have a large sample size overall in our groups two, three, and four. We've got quite a diverse group of people, particularly in group two, in terms of our education and employment. And we've got both genders being used in group two and three. However, we have a much smaller Asperger's high-functioning autism group of just 15 individuals, and they were all male. And when it comes to group four, we don't know if they are males or females. We just know that they are IQ matched and to act as a control for that group and to see the greater comparisons. One other thing that is kind of linked with validity, but also with our generalizability, because those two things are a little bit linked, though we need to keep them a little bit separate, is that the stimuli was static. In the real world, we're not just looking at humans with static eyes. We blink, we move our eyes around, we're looking in different directions. So it does limit the generalizability and the validity of the results that the stimuli was static. But I'll leave the rest of the validity stuff to Leanne a little bit later. Moving on to the R for reliability. So reliability is how likely are we to, if we repeat a study, to get similar or the same kinds of results. So there are lots of things that lend itself to strong reliability here in the study. And it's actually pretty similar in a lot of the studies, but that's because psychologists and researchers know how to do things well to make sure that their study can be tested for reliability, can be done again. Firstly, it is a lab experiment. 
which lends itself to being able to standardize a lot of things. In this particular case, we've got lots of standardized tests. We've got the AQ and the IQ, both standardized tests that have been used in many different studies and both presumably have pretty good reliability as well because we keep using them. The ICE test in this case was the same for everyone. We're not so sure about the reliability so far because this was one of the first studies actually addressing it. So we don't know about test retest reliability for this particular test. However, I think I've done it multiple times myself. I assume you ladies have both done it multiple times yourself as well. And I assume you get similar scores each time. And so showing that it has a bit of test retest reliability. So don't talk about that because it's not in the study itself. There is one but that I have in terms of the reliability. Not all people did the AQ. So group two of a wide range of males and females of a wide range of ages and education and employment, a large group of people did not do the AQ. And understandably so, because it takes a bit of time. And even with the student cohort group three, the reason why we had some missing results there is presumably they came and they did the ICE test on the computer and they got given an envelope with the AQ in it. Please go do this at home and then mail it to us. And a number of people did not do that. And it really, really surprises me that with the student group, that the higher proportion that did not return it were females rather than males. Normally, I would think that if somebody's not going to do it, it would probably be men. But maybe that's because I am a biased woman. And it probably is the case. I think it's just something interesting. So they did not give the AQ to group two because they didn't want them to give too much stuff to do. And there were probably more people that were likely to not do it rather than to do it. And so they just went, you know what, we'll just ignore it and give it to the students instead to be able to see the correlation between the ICE test and the AQ. But overall, it has pretty good reliability. The group three students, the Cambridge students, they were not given an IQ test either, whether it was assumed that they were much more intelligent. Now, logic would suggest that is the case because we know it's very difficult to get into Cambridge University, but it's still quite a big assumption to make if we're trying to be scientific about something. Yeah, it is. They do mention in talking about Group 3 that they literally say, since this university has very stringent entrance requirements, in brackets, typically three grade A's at AL examinations. Now. Most of the people listening to this are probably not yet at their final year of high school doing their A-levels. However, you do know that for many universities, particularly in the UK, not so much here in my country, but that A-level is required to get into university. And for Cambridge, three A's. And A's are not easy things to get in your A-level results. And so you've got to really work hard. So by saying that, we, it is assumed that they would have high IQ, but I see where you're coming from when we probably shouldn't be making so many assumptions about our participants. Yeah, I guess we could say that they're using an outside measure. But, you know, my father always told me that, you know, what assuming does. OK, so we've hinted at this before, but in terms of our application, A for application, one way that we can apply this test and the study is that it can perhaps guide specialists who can then design programs for people who have an impaired theory of mind particularly with those with Asperger's and high-functioning autism, to design a program that can help them improve their abilities. And then they can use the ICE test to see how those abilities have improved over time. So you can use it as a pre-test and a post-test and maybe a follow-up test to see how theory of mind abilities have developed over time and how they can be maintained over time as well. 
Another application that we can see, and one of the reasons why they revised the eyes test, was to distinguish between the high-functioning adults from controls and potentially also even see how it's more of a spectrum that those who are the parents of people who have been diagnosed with um, Asperger's or high-functioning autism may have a more impaired theory of mind than controls. However, less of an impaired theory of mind compared to those who actually have been diagnosed with Asperger's or high-functioning autism, so, so to see the difference. There also might be some relevance of this test beyond the autism spectrum disorder, like with brain damaged patients, because that may also impair somebody's theory of mind if they've had some traumatic event or um, other trauma that may lead to brain damage. And one other thing that I will say about the application here is that it is readily used. It's quite easy. There's a Googleable version of it that we all use in our classes. And also, additionally, a child version of the test apparently has also been developed. So it doesn't have to only be used for adults, though in the early years, ages three and four, we can test a child's theory of mind through the Sally Ann test, which Leanne talked about at the start. However, a similar eyes test through this might be a little bit more distinguishable with multiple sets of eyes rather than just one right or wrong test with the Sally Ann test. Okay, so that takes us to the V of the grave mnemonic, which is validity. And we're going to use this chance to kind of review validity in a bit more detail than we have done previously. Just to give you those sort of extra, maybe if you like, bonus points in the exam. So for those of you that are aiming for the highest grades, maybe you can pick up one or two extra marks for breaking it down. Now, if we look, first of all, at the AQ, the Autism Quotient Test, we know it is a valid measure. It is one that's been used multiple times. But there are some cautions to have when we think about the validity. And the main one for me is that there is no middle option. You're given a statement and you can either agree or disagree. There's no middle option. It's a four-point scale, not a five-point. There's nothing in the middle. So if you really are quite neutral about it, you have no choice. So that could skew our results slightly. The second thing about the validity in this study is although it's a laboratory experiment and we can control a lot of our variables, we are looking at a naturally occurring IV. And as I think Jamie mentioned, we can't therefore randomly allocate people to conditions. So we've got to be a little bit careful that although it is a laboratory experiment, it's not quite the same in that we can't 100% say, ah, oh, well, good control of the variables. Okay, so just be aware of that. Now, breaking it down more specifically and looking at the eyes test, we can think about our three types of internal validity, our face validity, construct validity, and criterion validity. Okay, and if we were to cast our mind back to our research methods, which I'm sure we can all remember really, really clearly, face validity is perhaps our simplest measure. If you look at a test, does it look like it's measuring what it says it's measuring? So if we look at this eyes test, does it look like it's measuring our ability to recognize emotions? Now, I would argue that probably, yes, it does. We know we can read emotions in people's eyes. There's a reason we have that poetic phrase that the eyes are the window to the soul. They're seen as a way into our thoughts and feelings. So a test that's looking at eyes would have a high validity in terms of, yeah, it probably is measuring our ability to understand some emotions. We then move on to construct validity. So if we just break that down, so a construct is something we can't measure directly we have to instead measure the other indicators. So here are constructed theory of mind and we're measuring it through the eyes test. The eyes test, especially this revised one that is used here, went through a lot of procedures to make it as valid as possible. We had the judging, 
we had even what the groups two and three said on it. And additionally, in the discussion section of the original paper, further studies asking people to do the eyes test while being given an fMRI scan show that during the eyes test, our neurotypical or normal people, the amygdala lights up, whereas in autistic people, the amygdala doesn't. And if we think back to Canley, we know the amygdala is connected with emotion. So we have some reasonably good evidence here that this test has good construct validity. However, we do need to still be a little bit cautious because obviously we've still only got four options. Okay, so we could just get lucky and have a one in four chance of getting the correct answer. Much more reliable than our previous 50-50, but still there's an option. We also had five out of eight judges had to agree. Well, that's still quite good. That's the majority. But what about the other three that disagreed? We can't sort of rule it out completely. So we have to be a little bit careful with how we interpret things. And then lastly, criterion validity. In other words, do the results correspond to a different test of the same thing? Now, if we look in this study, we have our correlation between the eyes test and the AQ. So if our test wasn't valid, we wouldn't have that correlation between the two. So the fact that we do have two tests, although are measuring from a different way, they are both measuring theory of mind and autism together. So the two correlate because we are measuring same aspects, if you like. So overall, the internal validity of this is quite strong, with, as always, a few things just to bear in mind. Now, if we move to external validity, our ecological validity, as I think Joe did touch on, is pretty low. We don't normally look at pictures of people's eyes to work out what they're feeling. We're normally in a much more dynamic environment. We have context cues, we have body language cues, we have tones of voice or the general environment. Actually, so it's not very easy to then apply this to a real world setting. Okay, and again, they only looked at the eyes for a limited amount of time. Now, a way to overcome this could be to use videos so people can actually see body language and movement as well. So overall, high internal validity, but low external validity. And the last part of GRAVE is the E, of course. It stands for ethics. We are looking at protection. There could be some tests that could cause stress to the participants, which could alter the test results. So are we really protecting the participants in this particular study? Perhaps the stress could be minimal, but perhaps if someone found out that they were a bit higher on the autism spectrum than they had originally anticipated, then this could be very surprising and psychologically difficult for them to take on. Ethically speaking, it's pretty well done. There's nothing too shocking. There's nothing too... And I'm pretty sure they kept everything very confidential as well. So that privacy element was really well covered. And I think the participants were very much assured of that confidentiality, again, because it is, like you say, a sensitive issue. I think it's also good because there was no deception involved, which is an important part of our ethics. But with that, then that led to more like for participants to be able to give their fully informed consent. Oh, I'm going to look at pairs of eyes and I'm going to identify which emotion I think is most relevant here. Fabulous. It's easy enough. You don't need to deceive them, just going to give their best guesses a go. Presumably they gave them their scores at the end. They may also not, I don't know. But if they did give them their scores at the end, like when you take the test online now, then they could, as part of their debrief following that, opt to get the um, final like collated results at the end of the study. 
I know that that has been standard for when I've been a part of psychological studies, both when I was at university and beyond that, that you can say, yes, please, I want the final results. Please send them to me so that they can have a look-see. Additionally, by observing the fact that a bunch of people did not return the AQ, we don't know if that happened because they were shocked by the score that they got. I don't think getting autism would be particularly shocking or depressing or anything either, but... I think it would be just actually because I forgot or something like that. Because when I get my students to do it on pen and paper, I ask them to give it to me and I score it because it's just easier to do that than be like, if you score on this side, you get a one. If you score on this side, then you get the zero. So I don't think it would be as a result of being fearful of the score, but it's probably just more of a, oh, I forgot it or I was too busy doing my homework or, "Mm." okay, and that's it for us with the Baron Cohen study. I hope that you have enjoyed listening along with us. Sadly, you cannot see us, so you cannot understand our emotions, but perhaps you are using your theory of mind to also hear it in our voices that we are excited to bring this to you and to share with you our understanding of the study so that you can understand it a whole lot better and grow in your theory of mind as well. Don't forget to like us on Facebook. We are facebook.com slash psychogcaie. You can also send us emails at psychogcaie at gmail.com. We would love to hear your questions. We want to be able to address those in forthcoming episodes. Love to hear from you on Messenger. Find our page. Leave comments. We would love to hear from you. So that's it from us. I'm Jo. I'm Jamie. And I'm Leanne. And we'll see you all next time. Bye. Bye.